This week on A Lively Experiment, the chaos in Cleveland. We'll talk about the good, the bad, and a lot of the ugly at the first presidential debate. Will you who shut up, man? Listen, who is on your list, Joe? And with Election Day just over a month away, the governor is unmoved by calls to allow a few more days for mail ballots to be received. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on our panel, Ted Nisi, politics and business editor for WPRI-TV, political and educational contributor Sean Holly, and columnist and former Rhode Island Attorney General, Arlene Violet. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us this week. Well, with the home stretch of the election just a month away, a lot of the focus has been on mail ballots. And Governor Raimondo so far has rejected a request to allow mail ballots to be counted that arrive up to three days after Election Day. As you know, there's been a lot of court action about easing signature requirements and everything, but she has held the line on this one. Arlene, let me begin with you on this. I can see this from both sides, and I wonder what you think whether she should allow, given some of the problems there have been with the Postal Service, or keep it right at Election Day. You've got to get it in by whatever it is on that night. I think she should change it. As long as it's posted by November 3rd or on November 3rd, it should be allowed uh, to be counted. As we know, across the country, uh, there have been modifications made to the Postal Service and while a court stopped any further problems, the fact of the matter is that there were uh, mailboxes taken out. Uh, some of them were in minority neighborhoods, et cetera. So from my perspective, across the country, including in Rhode Island, if your ballot is postmarked November 3rd or earlier, allow it. And don't you think also they're going to have issues with just the actual counting itself? I mean, I'm not... I'm sure the Board of Elections is scrambling in the local canvassers to set all this stuff up, but they're going to need the manpower just to be able to do it. They may need a couple of days as it's spread out after Election Day. Yeah, as you know, some allow the counting to start before even November 3rd. I'm somewhat reluctant to allow that because while we have not had a voter fraud uh, to the degree or any near the degree that President Trump talks about, I do get concerned that if people are opening the ballots and seeing how they're coming, there could be mischief then before the election. So I don't agree with opening the ballots before the election. Let's have a little patience. This is COVID, for heaven's sakes. So stay tight and watch it unfold. Sean, what do you think about this? There's been a lot of talk about mail ballots, and uh, certainly the president has tried to discredit them. There's a lot of states that have done only mail ballots over the years. How are you feeling going into this election in terms of how Rhode Island is prepared for this? I'm I'm very concerned about how the election process is going to play out. I mean, we're we're facing an extremely important election, uh, both at the national level as well as the state level. Given the curveball that the pandemic has thrown to us, we need to be able to adapt to the times that there may be a need to be a little bit more patient with the the results coming in. Look, we we often emphasize the right to vote, and we often emphasize the uh, to exercise that right to vote. Let's also make sure that those votes are counted once they are cast. 
Ted, what do you think the governor's hesitation has been on this? I understand there, you know, there was a back and forth with the General Assembly. Nellie Gorbea sent out the applications to everybody, not the mail ballots, but the applications. What do you think her hesitancy is to issue that executive order? Well, certainly, Jim, I think some of it is, uh, you know, we got to remember everything the governor is doing here is pretty extraordinary, right? She's been governing by executive decree now for over six months. We're heading for seven months here under her emergency powers. So one piece is I think it is probably right for her to be cautious about, you know, changing the rules of our elections too easily on her own authority. As you say, General Assembly leaders uh, didn't necessarily want her to, for example, that's a big reason we didn't have mail ballot applications sent out for the primary. Senate President Ruggiero didn't want that. And so the governor didn't do it, even though she'd done the executive order for that earlier. So I think some of it's a a natural caution around uh, overstepping how she uses her emergency powers. Um, And also, look, yeah, when the president uh, is clearly, you know, looking to set the table now for potential challenges to the election results after November 3rd. And I think Democrats like the governor are not looking to, you know, muddy the rules too much to give fodder for the idea that, oh, and they just changed the rules, which only reinforce some of the president's, you know, concerns that he's he's putting forward. What about the concerns about easing the signature requirements? Because a lot of, I just actually heard Nick Lima on the radio this morning. He's the elections director in Cranston. And some people were concerned you got all these things coming in. He says, look, we have to match each signature in terms of the signature requirements that federal judge uh, Mary McElroy uh, released. What about some of the concern about that, that if you don't have that either two signatures and and a notary, that that could be problematic? Or do you think that potentially disenfranchises people? Well, that's the thing, right? I think you raised two good points there, Jim, that the onerousness in some ways of a mail ballot compared to walking into a polling place could make it harder for people, especially if you assume it's folks who are more vulnerable and therefore don't want to go out as much uh, because of the pandemic. And then also, you know, it's Rhode Island. Uh, It's a place Arlene can give us chapter and verse on the chicanery over the years in Rhode Island politics. And I think there's a natural suspicion in Rhode Island because of just too many stories in the past about corruption and people not behaving right. And so I'm hearing it too, Jim. I get emails all the time from viewers concerned about, you know, using mail ballots so much, you know, is there more room for, for, you know, voter fraud? As Arlene says, there's national studies have shown little minimal voter fraud all across the country. But on the other hand, you can't blame people for being so concerned about the integrity of elections. It's the foundation of our system. Well, I just don't want it to take a life of its own. Of course, this is an emergency. uh, So I can see obviously doing without uh, having those uh, other signatures, correct? But I hope this doesn't become the harbinger of things to come. I think once this, hopefully this pandemic is over, we should revert back to the old way of of voting with those signatures. All right. I've done this with every uh, panel that we've done when we've talked about voting. Let me do a quick snap poll with the panel. Are you going to vote in person? Are you going to do early voting or are you going to do mail ballot? Arlene, let's start with you. In person. Okay. Uh, Sean, what about you? I will be doing uh, in person as well. Okay. Ted? I actually don't vote as a reporter. It's just it's just my personal uh, thing. But I if I would I think I would vote in person with a mask on election you know, day. You really you don't vote at all. That's that's another discussion for another day. Yeah. I yeah. don't vote in primaries because then you have to decide Democrat Republican. And there's always some woman at the uh, the polling spot who goes, "Hey, look, it's Jim Hummel. He wants that." Whatever ballot. So, you know, how yeah, you goes. know, I'm not I'm not militant about it. And uh, 
you know, people often are horrified when uh, they hear me say that. It's just a personal thing that I, you know, I like never making a final choice as a reporter, keeping open mind. I'm not claiming I'm some pure soul or anything like that. We all have thoughts, but it's just my own way of handling it. All right. You have company. company. A lot of reporters feel that way. Yeah. Well, I think I think. uh, Yeah, I've I've heard some over the years say that. Um, Folks, were you one of the 73 million people who watched the show this week? The presidential debate, which devolved basically into a rock fight. Uh, If you didn't see it, maybe you were trying to avoid it. You can't avoid it. Our uh, senior producer, Dorothy Dickey, to set the table, put together about 45 seconds. If you want to turn the volume off, that's fine. But you may want to watch this to set our discussion. Here's a little bit from the debate. Sure. You graduated last in your class, I, not I, first in your class. I want to make Mr. sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? Okay. Sir? Chris, You're that was the worst him, part of Obama. Me. Let me ask my question. Well, I'll, I'll ask Joe. I, 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 the individual no, I, mandate was the most unpopular aspect Pre- of Obamacare. I got rid of it. I'd like you and to, we will protect Mr. people President, with I'm the moderator of this debate, and I would like you to let me ask my question. But if I see tens of thousands of ballots being manipulated, I can't go along with that. And I'll tell and you what, what, what does that from mean, a common sense, does that mean you're I'll going tell you to tell what your means. people to take to it the It means street? you have a fraudulent election. Question left. Will you shut up, Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so right. Gentlemen, is, I think this we've is ended so this. He's going to pack the court. We have end, we're no, not no. going to give a list. We have ended. Yeah, the, uh, the postmortem on this was that the president basically wanted to go in and try to disrupt uh, Joe Biden, throw him off his game. Clearly, we've never seen anything like this. Now, there are some prominent columnists on both sides. George F. Will, who generally leans conservative, and uh, Frank Bruni for The New York Times saying they should just call off the last two baits. I'm not sure whether that's a good strategy on either side. But, Sean, let me start with you on this. Um, just your general impressions and, and whether you do think we should go on with the other two. Wow. That's all I can say about the, uh, <laughs> this debate. I mean, you know, both sides lost a, a great opportunity to move the needle in, in their favor. But, um, you know, and we're in a time period where our country is down and out because of a, going through a, a pandemic, going through racial divide and all s- sorts of issues. Uh, it, we kind of, I think most Americans were looking forward to these candidates showing us more security about what's to come. Um, I I don't see not doing the the last two debates. Um, I think there you know there's going to be naysayers on whether Biden does it and doesn't do it. But uh, there's got to be a better process. But I don't know. I mean, Chris Wallace is a, a very uh, respectable man, and so I don't know if changing the moderator, changing the tone, or changing rules. I don't know how much that is going to come into play if there's going to be that sort of bullying and embarrassing the country type of uh, mentality. Ted, you and uh, Tim have been in that spot many times. Nothing like this. The the closest I could think of was Chris Young, maybe uh, the late, great Chris Young, maybe uh, disrupting things. But as you sat there and watched it, you kind of feel for Chris Wallace. Absolutely, Jim. And you've done it too. I mean, you know, I think Tim and I, as you'd imagine, we've been talking about it all week. You know, how would we handle that? The only comparison we could think of in our careers would be Buddy Cianci's final run in 2014 and how hard we prepped because we knew Buddy was knew as much or more about media than we did and knew, you know, all of the tricks of the trade and everything. And, and Donald Trump is a media figure. You know, it's a television show and he, he knows about that. Um, I, 
I go back and forth a bit about Chris Wallace. As, as Sean said, he's a very respected, moderate, tough interviewer on Sundays. On the other hand, you know, he gave an interview to the New York Times yesterday uh, saying basically that, you know, he didn't expect the president to be that aggressive and he didn't realize quickly enough in the debate that that was the case. I, I'm a little surprised he was surprised because I think, you know, President Trump, so much of what he's done the last few years has been to disrupt the traditional ways the media operates, um, trying to kind of hack the system. And, you know, you have to have a plan to try to mitigate that. And Wallace did, you know, over time try to push back. But I think Tim always says once a debate starts to go off the rails, very hard to put the, I think he says put the cheese back on the bread or something like that. He has some weird statement like that. But, you know, it is, it's hard to bring it back together. Well, it was the septuagenarian shootout at the OK Corral, <laughs> obviously, and what a disgrace. You know, all the foreign uh, newspapers, I read about a half a dozen of them uh, yesterday, talked about what a disgrace this was to America. Uh, and frankly, you know, on the one hand, uh, Mr. Biden, I guess, interrupted 21 times, 71 times for Mr. Trump, according to Aaron Blake of The Fix who I uh, published uh, that information, but it's terrible. You know, when uh, Mr. Biden shouldn't have started talking about he's a clown twice. Uh, I, uh, but on the other hand, uh, Mr. Trump was just full of invective, falsehoods. I guess he felt the louder he shouted and the more he interrupted, that would mutate somehow into truth, etc. It was just shameful. And what I really... Uh, find opprobrious is now the uh, Presidential Debate Commission is looking potentially to shut the mics off if this happens. That's terrible that they would ever even think about having to be in that position. These debates aren't per se about the candidates. It's about America. And just like those foreign newspapers, America was the loser of that debate the other night. But short of but so but short of doing that, what what stick do you have for the president? Because clearly all of his base, all of his advisor, I read the same stories, Ted, I read about uh, Chris Wallace. They he was you know, he was giddy as he walked off the stage. Boy, and I really killed him. Whereas everybody else is like, what a horror show it was. What I mean, I think about Kristen Welker, who used to work with me at ABC six and uh, Steve Scully, who's going to be uh, doing the next debate. What could they do? Short of shutting off the mics, I agree with Arlene, but how do you institute anything to keep the president off the rails when he doesn't, on the rails, when he doesn't respect what the rules are? What do you do? To some extent, you can't, right? He is the president of the United States. As Wallace said, both these men have millions of uh, supporters in the American public and cutting off their mics, I'm, you know, I don't blame the commission and the moderators for considering that after how poorly last the debate this week was received. But, you know, to cut off the microphone of the president of the United States or the Democratic nominee for president of the United States is such a radical step. And, you know, I, I, it goes against, to some extent to me, everything we've learned the past few years about uh, the media and the press corps needing to be, you know, have some humility that we're not elected. And these people, you know, are, do put themselves before the American public and are chosen by them. And so, I, I think it's just a tough spot. And I think it's, you know, the president, this is not new. President Trump knows that a lot of the things that are the way things are done in American politics are just norms and traditions. And if someone decides they're not going to follow them, there's no law that no one's going to throw them in jail. And I think he, you know, once again, this is another example of him kind of hacking the system. And uh, I will say, I'm not sure it benefited his reelection campaign a whole lot. He didn't win the polls on who won the debate. 
There were multiple stories this morning about Republicans alarmed that, you know, he's leading support with women and that that kind of kind of bullying approach is not going to bring a lot of them back. Um, but we have to we have to see. We have to see where it goes from here. But I think it's just I think, Jim, they face just a, the commission and the moderators face a very, very hard situation. Cutting, so the mics, Go ahead. cutting the mics is the ultimate act of censorship, which is mm. exactly what the First Amendment and the media and, and journalists uh, are all about. There cannot be this censorship. So in the final analysis, never shut off the mics. If we see the same spectacle, so be it. And people have to judge uh, on that show of uh, what happened there. But I hope the media you know, never gets in that position. Because remember now, these are journalists who are asking the questions. I never, ever want to put them on the spot as looking like they're the people who are doing the censorship by shutting off mics. Never. Sean, just lastly, I want to I, give I, you the- I totally agree with the, I, I can't see how there will be any censorship. Um, I mean, de- let's face it, debates are not like they used to be. Um, the, I, I doubt that a leading debate school would encourage that sort of performance that we witnessed. Um, there's just, we. There was a blatant disregard for professionalism. Uh, there's definitely a need for us to figure out a better way for the debate system. But I feel bad for guys like Ted, who I religiously watch to get my uh, feedback <laughs> on, on the political uh, issues. And I mean, you're left with not too much to talk about other than this circus. Sean, just lastly, before we move on to the next topic, what would you like to have heard? What were you hoping to hear from President Trump and Joe Biden going in? In a perfect world, we we want to learn something about the candidates or their policies. Were you looking for something specifically from each candidate or just to see what they were, how they were going to react to each other? It was hard to point to anything that we really were able to take away from that debate. I mean, it was so muddied by all the, the chaos Uh, There wasn't really any clear discussion about racial divide. There wasn't clear discussion about the COVID situation. Uh, Really, can you point to anything that really stood out? Well, that's just to jump in. I think Sean's right. And I think part of why I'm not convinced the president's strategy was effective is a, just the, the fact that what we're talking about is the chaos of the debate, nothing specific. And also that comment about the proud boys uh, the far right group, I'd say that, you know, I'd say Biden's worst moment was probably when he just continues to tap dance about court packing, as is Kamala Harris. They won't give a straight answer on that. But the president, you know, white supremacy, a lot of Republicans are not comfortable with any gray, any daylight, you know, and then waiting another day to, to clarify that. Uh, so even in spite of all this, you know, the headline that came out of it was was chaos. And then what does the president think of white supremacy? When you're down in the polls, I don't think that's good. Arlene, final word. Clarification uh, really doesn't work because the lead in to, to the actual comment that he made was, will you condemn white supremacist group? So even if he didn't specifically know uh, who Proud Boys was, he certainly had the lead in that referred to them as a white supremacist group. So for me, his so-called lack of knowledge does not wash. 
Okay, the rush is on by the White House and the Republicans to confirm a new Supreme Court justice before the new, either before the new election, which is a very tight window, or before the new administration takes over, if there is a change in administration and Senate. Um, Ted, you had a very interesting article. Sheldon Whitehouse, boy, he's, he's right back in the thick of it again as a member of the Judiciary Committee. And we've seen this before. He's, you know, he was a U.S. prosecutor. He was the attorney general, well-spoken, and it looks like they're grooming him to take a pretty prominent role in this. Tell us about that. Yeah, Jim, I think, uh, you know, sometimes it's easy for us up here to lose sight both around Massachusetts of how our uh, congressmen and women and senators are uh, seen in Washington. But Sheldon Whitehouse is now number four on the Senate Judiciary Committee. You gotta remember the top Democrat is Dianne Feinstein, who's now 87. And there are clearly concerns among some Democrats that uh, she doesn't have her fast fall anymore and uh, they need someone else leading it. There was a report in Politico that some people want Sheldon Whitehouse to run the committee, some of the Senate Democrats, for the confirmation hearings. Now, you know, he's he has also become a, you know, a hate figure among conservatives over these these judge things, A, because of his pressing Judge Kavanaugh about his yearbook uh, during those confirmation hearings, his ongoing critique of uh, the push by conservatives to control the courts and, and elect more just uh, elect, confirm more justices, um, and just Sheldon Whitehouse being the way he is uh, rubs a lot of Republicans the wrong way, but that's kind of the flip side of him now having um, some real clout and a, a really high profile. I was struck Jim, when I did that story, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, one of the most influential, you know, outfits in conservatism, has written 19 editorials about Sheldon Whitehouse just in the <laughs> oh, last wow. year, which just to me is a sign, you know, even if they really don't like him, he's, he seems relevant. The Democrats have a dilemma, however, on that panel, including Sheldon Whitehouse, because as one political pundit put it, every single time that you uh, are away discussing COVID is a minute that's good for President Trump. So the Democrats, I think, have to be very careful at this hearing. I mean, obviously, as a woman, I am very concerned about uh, women's reproductive rights uh, with this candidate that's been put forth. Uh, the Affordable Care Act is in jeopardy as far as I'm concerned. I think she's a wolf in sheep's clothing. No question about that. But to the degree the Democrats' behavior, and, Sh and Sheldon's behavior did come up. Uh, at the last uh, review, as you know, of, of that candidate, Kavanaugh, they can't take the spotlight off Trump and Mr. Trump's record and now have the media uh, really focusing on their behavior during uh, the, this proceeding. So I just think they have a real tightrope to walk. John? Hmm. Well, Arlene is, is, is exactly right in terms of... Uh, Sheldon's behavior has come into question. I mean, he, but it, he has certainly emerged as the Democratic Party's leading voice on courts, especially amid uh, Trump's um, uh, trying to pack the, the court system. Uh, but uh, he's, he's going to be relentless. I think it's going to be a tough battle for this confirmation, but I think it eventually will go through just because of the nature of the system. Uh, and I think there's enough time for them to push her through before the election, unfortunately. All right. Got a couple other things I want to get to, but I don't want to short you on outrages. Mr. Nisi, let's begin. Do you have an outrage or a kudo this week? I have an outrage. Uh, it's a Washington Post story, and I'm just going to look at it on my phone because I want to get the uh, this right. This is a big story they just did, and they said, 
job losses from the pandemic overwhelmingly affected low-wage minority workers most. Seven months into the recovery, black women, black men, and mothers of school-aged children are taking the longest time to regain their employment. And it struck me because they talk about how unequal this COVID recession is and how a lot of people with a lot of college-educated workers, there's been very little job loss overall for them. And it's still way down for people in the service sector, maybe people with high school degrees. And I just fear that... Um, you know, to the extent that it, a lot of people higher up on the income chain are insulated from it, it may make it harder for them to understand how much pain there is further down the ladder. Arlene, what do you have this week? Well, in general, just the degradation of expectations. You know, I know people who are Trump supporters and their attitude after the last debate was, oh, well, that's what you get. That's what he's like, etc." <laughs> but, you know, the fact of the matter is this country used to be that shining light up on the hill. Uh, certainly presidents conducted themselves with some element of dignity. And for people just to brush off that temper tantrum during that debate, to me, is very disturbing for us as a country. Sean, the last time you were on, you uh, you talked about your father in a kudo. And I'm sorry to say, and our condolences to you, that he died uh, within the last month. So I just wanted to note that that was his, that was your um, your kudo when we first had you on. So I don't know if you have an outrage or a kudo or you want to follow up on that, but the uh, the floor is yours. Well, I'm, uh, well, I don't want to get emotional and follow up on that. <laughs> um, I'm going no to two kudos because of the fact that we need a lot of positivity going on. Uh, first, uh, last weekend, there was a moving ceremony for the uh, Beirut Rhode Island Nine that was held, uh, and, a, and a buddy of mine's uh, Michael Harris, who actually survived that Beirut bombing, um, was prominent in, in putting that uh, event together. Uh, and the other one, Jim, I'm going to switch the narrative up on a, a little bit for you, and let's go with the Patriots and Cam Newton as a coup. <laughs> That's a good narrative. <laughs> yeah, he's been good. Right. We'll see how he does against Kansas City this weekend, Sean. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, folks, we just have uh, a couple of minutes left. Um, Ted, let me go back to you on uh, Speaker Mattiello. He's got incoming from all sides. You know, Barbara Ann Fenton Fong is running this aggressive campaign. You guys reported that the grand jury may or may not be over with the convention center. And then the Jeff Britt trial. I thought for sure this was going to be delayed until after the election. As far as we know, barring some last-minute thing, October 5th, it's going on. So he's really, uh, he's got a lot on his plate these days. Yeah, uh, you, you set it up exactly right there, Jim. I mean, I think the Mattiello campaign had seemed pretty confident he'd be fine against Barbara and Fenton Fung, let's say, during the summer months. And I've just picked up more and more signs in recent weeks. They're, they're getting more alarmed about the possibility that uh, he, he could be defeated. I think, um, you know, they the trial in particular is such a wild card. One thing people got to remember, we're used to these corruption trials around taking place in federal court, which means there are no cameras. You know this, Jim. This is all in state court. So the, if, if Matty Ellis to testify, it will be on the three networks that night and people will see it for themselves. So that's just, that is... You know, I think any campaign strategy would say you don't want to be on the witness stand about corruption in a previous campaign as you're in the final weeks trying to win your current one. Yeah. Arlene, what about Barbara Ann Fenton Funk? She's really run a pretty aggressive campaign. Well, I certainly think she has a, a decent shot 
to say the least. But you know, if you're a candidate and having been a candidate, the last thing you want is to be uh, right before the election <laughs> up on the stand testifying. Uh, but I just want to say something on behalf of Peter Nerona. An attorney general should be non-political. But what that means is neither advancing a trial or retarding that trial. You should really let things play out the way they are. So I want to give a kudos to him uh, to uh, at least allowing the process to go unimpeded by him. So good for him. And what do you think the best about the strategy? Just about 30 seconds left of a bench trial, Judge Procassini versus a jury trial in this case. Clearly, well, there's a legal the strategy there. theoretically out of it. You know, if you're a politician, you do worry about whether people are uh, Republicans on there, so they definitely want to give you the shot, et cetera. At least with the judge, and this particular judge, I have a lot of regard for. So uh, I just think that was a very wise choice that was made. All right, folks, and we it is the end of the show, but we should note, it's not Nick Mattiello who's on trial. It's his top campaign aide, Jeff Britt for money laundering, but we'll see that all play out in a week. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. Sean, good to have you back. And Ted, first time we've had you via Zoom. I don't know how you slipped through the cracks, but thank you for coming back. And uh, Arlene, as always, good to see you. Folks, you never know what's going to happen in the next week, but we will have it covered. Come back here next week as a Lively Experiment continues. Have a great weekend. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.